there are some 300 Old Testament prophecies regarding Jesus Christ's second coming and also some 300 prophecies regarding his first coming. From his birth until his resurrection, the Old Testament prophets spoke clearly of the Messiah. And tonight I want to share some of those prophecies with you as it pertains to both the night that he was betrayed and the day that he was crucified. I'm going to begin in the book of Psalms, and if you can read along with me if you're able to follow along, that would be good. We're not going to read all of the whole psalm. We're going to be reading portions of it as well as portions of other Old Testament scriptures. So we'll be bouncing through several different portions of scripture tonight. But prayerfully, it'll set the stage for us as we move forward in our remembrance of the suffering of our Lord Jesus. So Psalm 22, beginning with verse 1, it's the most familiar passage of Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And down to verse 6, it continues, it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shout out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 12 continues and says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 34. Verse 20 says, He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Psalm 69. Beginning with verse 19, David says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Isaiah 52 Verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. 
in chapter 3, beginning, 53, beginning with verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb by the, to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he has been cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And verse 12, in the middle of the verse, it says, His soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. These Old Testament scriptures and many more speak of our Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering, in his pain, in his sorrow. And certainly he did endure greatly. Terrible things had been done to him. And for what purpose? For God's purpose, God's intent. It pleased the Lord for him to do these things. That, my friends, is so far beyond my understanding. A loving God loves us. How could he love his own son less? And yet, we know that he didn't love his own son less, but there came a time when he had to forsake his son for our sake. Grab hold of that truth. The first psalm that we read, Psalm 22 tonight, began with those very words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those are the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. We will be looking at that later on. But keep that in mind. The Lord Jesus was separated from his loving Father, the one that he obeyed completely, without fail. Every word that Jesus spoke was only spoken because the Father had given those words to him to speak. Everything that Jesus had done in his entire ministry was only done because the Father had instructed him to do those things. Everything that Jesus did and said was in total obedience to his loving father and he loved his father and there was no question at all to anyone who followed him that he had a relationship with his father in heaven that nobody else could ever possibly ever ever attain to and yet he found himself alone 
in the garden and forsaken on the cross. Before he went to the cross, we all know that he came into Jerusalem on that first day of the week, the day we call Palm Sunday. He was the lamb to be inspected, as we shared last Sunday. And that inspection took place over the next few days. He presented himself as a lamb of God to the Pharisees. They found no fault, no blemish. He presented himself to the scribes. They found no fault, no imperfection, no blemish. He presented himself to the Sadducees. They found no fault, no blemish, no imperfection. Nothing that would disqualify him from being the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It all was pointed to by those Old Testament scriptures of the Passover. And so Jesus, on the appropriate day, met with his disciples in an upper room. And it was there that he celebrated with him, with them the last Passover that he would celebrate with them. It's the great feast of Israel. And he, being a Jew, met with his Jewish disciples in that upper room. Thirteen men gathered together. We're not really told that there are others. There may have been, but we know that there were at least of twelve apostles plus Jesus in that upper room. But one of them was to betray them, betray him. And Jesus let them know that that was about to happen. And after he let them know, and the, the message of that betrayal shocked them so, so very much. They all said, is it I? Is it I? Did I betray you? Will I betray you? How can this be possible? Who is it, Lord? Until finally, John, leaning on Jesus' breast, asked him privately. And Jesus said, it's the one who dips his bread in the sop with me. And John observed when Jesus dipped his bread into the sop, the hand of Judas. And as soon as Judas did that, Jesus turned to him and said, Go and do what you are needing to do. He knew who would betray him. It was no surprise. It was already a plan of God from the very beginning. He had even said to his disciples earlier on that one of their own would betray him. Have I not chosen you, he had said, but one of you will betray me. Well, this was the night of betrayal. Judas left, apparently. We're not really certain whether Judas left before Jesus did something very, very unique with regard to the Passover. Some believe that he left before. Others believe that he left afterward. I'm convinced that it was after the Last Supper, the breaking of bread, and the blessing cup was drunk. Jesus instructs his disciples as he institutes, institutes this Last Supper in this way. In Matthew's Gospel, 
chapter 26, beginning with verse 26, he says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my blood. Or my body, rather, I'm sorry. Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's house. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Would you all stand with me? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, thy will be done. He prayed on three separate occasions, and meanwhile his disciples were sleeping. He was alone. Very, very much alone. All of the Gospels record his time in Gethsemane. Luke alone tells us that he shed great drops of blood. Now, people might think, well, Jesus didn't really want to go to the cross, did he? Oh, no, that's not true. He despised the cross. But he knew that it must be the path that he was to take. What he was asking the Lord is not to keep him from the physical pain, but from the agony, the torment of being separated from his father because of the sins of the world that would be put upon him. In Psalm 79, I believe it is, it's recorded that there is a cup of the wrath of God and it must be drunk. Jesus drank that cup so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's what he was asking the Father if it was possible, if there was any other way but he knew that there was no other way. He wasn't shying away from his responsibility to become the Savior of the world. He was willing to take every step necessary, including this. When he found his disciples sleeping, the third time he realized it was time the betrayer had come with men, with swords and staves, torches, in the dark of night. Judas came and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Master, he said. Oh, how could he do so? Why have you come, Jesus said, do you uh, betray your master with a kiss?
Not only was he betrayed by Judas, he was also deserted by his other disciples. As soon as they had taken Jesus, there was a skirmish. Peter tried to cut off one of the servant's ears and Jesus healed it. And he said, put away your your sword. Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels? But that's not the way it's going to work out. You realize how many legions of angels, 12 legions of angels? A legion is a thousand. 12,000 angels could have been called. That would have been surely enough to deliver Jesus from this terrible thing that was about to take place. But it wasn't about to happen. Yes, Judas betrayed him. The other apostles deserted him. And he was tried. And the trial began at Caiaphas' house, Caiaphas's house, and it was a mock trial, what you might call a kangaroo court. They had already made their verdict. They just needed to find something to accuse him of. And so as they proceeded, they had many witnesses come, but they couldn't find anybody who agreed. And you always needed at least two witnesses in order to bring a judgment. In verse 57 of chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, he gives this account. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. He kept his distance. Verse 59 says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And they said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, that's a lie. He never said that. He was referring to himself, his body, referring to his being raised up from the dead after three days in the grave. He never said the temple of God. They twisted his statements. But there were two men who had this testimony against him. And verse 62 says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Remember in our reading of the Old Testament, Isaiah spoke of how he answered not a word to his accusers. But in this one moment, in verse 63, we find Jesus answering the question. Because the question was relevant. The high priest had said, What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the relevant question. Tell us if you really are the, really are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus was here referring to Daniel chapter 7. We've referred to that in our studies previously. It is a prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures about the Ancient of Days seated on his throne and one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days and he is sent to king to be reigning over all the earth, to be king of all and coming in the clouds of glory. This is what Jesus is saying to this high priest, Caiaphas. And when he said these words, Caiaphas realized he was indeed admitting he is the Messiah. And Caiaphas' response is this. Then it says in verse 65, The high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. He had made his declaration. They had made their decision. He's deserving of death. Because he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah? Did they not know of all the miracles that he had done? Did they not hear his words that he had spoken for three and a half years? Were they not aware of the power that came forth from his lips and from his hands to give them everything they needed to realize who indeed he was. But right from the very beginning, they would not have him as their Messiah. They made their decision. He's deserving of death. Verse 67 says, Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of, his, of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? After that mock trial, which lasted all night long, about five or six o'clock in the morning, Jesus is now brought to Pilate. They delivered him. In verse 1 of chapter 27, Matthew's Gospel says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus, Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Verse 11 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Again, remember the words of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was like a sheep silent before his shearers. The governor wanted to release Jesus. He had said, I find no fault in him. This man is innocent. Why did you bring him to me? I find it most interesting, if you look through all of the gospel records, we find a Pilate saying, this man is innocent. We find Judas, when he returns the money 
that was given to him to betray Jesus. They didn't want the money, but he brought it to them, saying, this man is innocent. He wanted to change everything that he had done, but it was too late for him. He went and hung himself. And they took the 30 pieces of silver and bought a field with it called the potter's field. That indeed is also in fulfillment of another prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures, Jeremiah. After he was brought to Pilate and Pilate had interrogated him and found no fault with him, he tried to get a way out of this whole mess. But they persisted. If you don't crucify him, they had said, you're no friend of Caesar. And he said, but is he not your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. When he had found out that they had been told and they told him that this man is an imposter saying that he is the Christ, the Messiah of the Jews, Pilate took him aside again privately and said, Are you a king then? And Jesus said, You are saying it is as you have said, as we read here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. But Pilate again could do nothing. Then he thought of a plan. You have another law, a saying in your nation, that on this feast day, it is appropriate for us to release one that you would request. So he brought for them another man whose name was Barabbas. And he had Barabbas and Jesus stand before the crowd and he said, Who would you have me to release, Barabbas or this Jesus that you call your Messiah? And they said, Give us Barabbas. And what will you have me to do with this man? Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! came the shouts from the crowd. Crucify Jesus? The one who had expressed the love of God to them, taught them so wonderfully about the plan of God to them, done so many marvelous miracles in their sight, walked with them, fellowshiped with them, ate with them. Jesus was was about to die. There was no way out. Pilate knew it. So he went ahead with their plan and sent him to the soldiers in the place called the pavement, where they would have many soldiers coming together to prepare the one who was set to be crucified for that inevitability. The first thing they did is described in Matthew's Gospel here in chapter 27, beginning with verse 27, where it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, some 200 men, 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, a kingly robe, of course. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Other gospel records tell us that before they took him away to be crucified, they scourged him. The Roman Roman scourging was not the same as the whipping of the uh, Hebrew law. Hebrew law allowed for a man to be given 40 lashes with a whip. The Jews typically only did 39. The theory was, in case they miscounted, they didn't want to go over the 40. But this isn't a Jewish whipping. This is a Roman flagellum. It is in the Latin language. It's a cord with strips of metal and glass attached to it. And the one who would be executing this particular method of punishment would take that cord and forcefully wrap it around the body of the victim and then yank it from that body as quickly as he could and it would tear the flesh brutally. And we're not told how many times this was done. But the Roman argument was they don't want to put him to death with the flagellum, although it would be very easily done if they had continued this brutal beating. But they only wanted to accomplish what they called the half-death. They wanted him still to be alive because he was scheduled to be crucified and he needed to have a live person to put on that cross. They came short of killing him. But the damage had been done. As Isaiah said, marred like no other man. And they led him away to be crucified. He carried his cross as far as he was able to but he collapsed from loss of blood and from the beatings that he had taken. And a Roman soldier standing by took a man out of the crowd. A man's name was Simon. He was of northern Africa, a Cyrene, the territory of Libya today. But he was told by the Roman officer to take up that cross beam and carry it on behalf of this prisoner. And he did. Have you ever wondered why we know his name? How is it that we know anything about him? Well, we do. We also know that he had two sons named Rufus and Alexander. They were believers. They were leaders in the church, as was Simon, eventually. And his wife also were known to the church. He became a believer. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Simon? He was there not to watch a crucifixion, but for the Passover. A joyous occasion, really, for most of the Jews who would come from all over the known world. The city of Jerusalem was filled, and he was picked by this Roman for this burden, if you will. It seemed like to him, what 
is there no other way? Is there nobody else? Well, no, there wouldn't be, because when a Roman soldier says, you, do this, then the Roman citizen or the slave was forced to do whatever the Roman officer asked of him. It was a law, so he had no choice. So he carried the crossbeam all the way to Golgotha, Calvary, it's called, the place of the skull, outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it's there that they laid Jesus on the beam, the storos in Greek. It's a pole. And the cross beam was placed under his shoulders. They had nailed his hands, probably at this point in his wrist, where the bones would support the weight. They're considered part of the hand in that culture. And also in his feet. And they took that cross and then they put it up and slid it into the hole that was made to hold the cross. Thump! Think of the jarring force of landing into that hole in the ground. That's not the only problem. Because he was hanging by his hands and only able to stand with his feet on that platform that was there for him to do so. Worn out, fatigue would set in. And it was hard for him to breathe. And the only way for him to take a good deep breath is to push up with his feet so that he could relieve his lungs. But he couldn't hold that long because of the pain so that he'd have to drop back down again and then tear into the wrists again, causing more pain. But that would only result in his not being able to breathe again. So it was a constant having to push up and release, push up and release. Now, you might think that that didn't last very long. Well, it didn't in Jesus' case, but it's not for the reason you might think. In fact, crucifixion was known to have been a slow death, and several records indicate that there were some who lasted more than a week before they passed away. But it's not the physical pain. It's not the suffering. It's not the ridicule, although they were there doing that. As we had read in Psalm 22, they mocked him. They stood before the cross and said, he saved others well. He was alive. Why can't he save himself now? Come down from that cross, they said, if you were the Son of God. So not only did the soldiers mock him, but the crowd continued to mock him. It tells us in verse 35 of chapter 27, they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, speaking of David. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The other Gospel writers tells us that it was written in three languages, in Hebrew, Greek, and in Roman, Latin. 
This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The Pharisees came to Pilate and said, Don't write that. Write instead, He said He is the King of the Jews. And thankfully, Pilate said, What I have written, I have written. Continuing on in this reading of chapter 27, verse 38 says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. Again, we read Psalm 22. It was written a thousand years before Christ. It pictures the crucifixion before crucifixion was used by the Persians. They were the first to insulate this terrible thing. The Romans perfected it. And in verse 44 it says, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now you know also, if you've read the other gospel accounts, and I pray that you will do that, by the way, read all four gospel accounts of the crucifixion of the Passion of Christ sometime between now and Sunday. But in one of the other Gospels, it tells us that one of those two, I believe it's Luke, who says that he realized this man is innocent. Remember Judas? He's innocent. Remember Pilate? He's innocent. The thief on the cross, he's innocent. When this thief on the cross heard the words of Jesus on the cross that he spoke, Words like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Turning to his own mother, saying, Woman, behold your son, pointing to John, and then speaking to John, Behold your mother, saying, I thirst. And some other sayings as well that he spoke on the cross, this thief must have realized this is more than just a man. He knew something about the word of God, apparently. And he had turned to Jesus when he realized, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' words to this man on the cross, one of the seven sayings of Jesus, and some of which I've already mentioned, but this is a special one to this one particular. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Psalm 22. Some of them who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling Elijah. 
Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said to him, said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It's important for us to realize that although Matthew doesn't record it here, John tells us something very specific took place at that moment. The words that Jesus spoke were words that were very important. They were found as a reference in a portion that we read already in Psalm 69, which says, They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Well, John remembers that that was a prophecy that was spoken, and he records that information for us in his account of this crucifixion in chapter 19, reading from verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, take note of what John is saying, all things had been accomplished. So that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Take note of the fact that John is recognizing that everything that was to be done has been accomplished by Jesus on the cross and all that had preceded. And John is saying, this last statement of Jesus, I thirst, is in fulfillment of that prophecy which was spoken by David. And so in verse 29 it says, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And again, although Matthew doesn't say what he cried out, John tells us he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Paid in full. It's an accounting term. We've mentioned it often. It means there is no more debt to be paid. It's done. It's taken care of. The debt has been satisfied. Tetelestai, it is finished. No more work needed be done than what Christ had done up till that very moment on the cross. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely. And he did at that very moment. At the ninth hour, Jesus died. at three o'clock in the afternoon. On Good Friday, if you will, Although many believe it was actually Thursday. I'm one of them, by the way, who believes that. Well, there's a lot of people who argue the dispute is unsolvable. But I believe, really, that the best fit is Thursday night. Jesus himself said, As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so shall be the Son of Man in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. You can't get three days and three nights out of a Friday crucifixion. Although it's technically Friday was counted as a day. So that's Friday, Saturday, and technically Sunday was counted as a day. But the problem with that is 
He rose before dawn. Well, Sunday begins at 6 o'clock on Saturday. Friday ends at 6 o'clock on Friday night, and Saturday begins. So if you believe a Good Friday date, that's fine. You can make it work. But I really like the fact that many others believe it was on a Thursday, and I agree with them. And, and again, I don't want to belabor the point, but that's why we're here tonight. We're here not because he ate the Passover on Thursday, from my point of view, but that he died on Thursday. He's in the grave as of this moment in time, almost 2,000 years ago, if that understanding is correct. Before they put him in the grave, and it had to be done before sunset at 6 o'clock, they had just three hours, so it had to be done in haste. And Matthew tells us this account, and again, chapter 27, beginning with verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. The reason they were there is because knowing that things were done in haste, they needed to wait until after the Passover Sabbath before they could do an appropriate preparation of the body. It hadn't been done. He just wrapped him in a linen cloth and laid him in a rich man's tomb. And that, by the way, is again fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture that we already read earlier tonight. Everything we read in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in these passages that we've looked at tonight. There's so much more. And we can't take the time to discuss all of these various things. I know the hour is late. But I want you to understand he did these things for you, for me, and for all who would simply believe, receive by faith in the finished work Remember his last words. If nothing else, remember to tell us die. It is finished. But it's not the end. Until Sunday, let us dwell on these truths that we've looked at. Let us leave from this place quietly tonight, reflecting on the wonderful work of Christ up to this point. And then when we gather together on Sunday, oh, we will be ready to praise Him. For now, go with a broken heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.